Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Scopophilia. We are the millennial movie movement. And I, of course, am your host, Becky Teller, back for this very fun, very informative, and quite quite frankly, uh, something that I am very excited to be putting out, our summer sessions. That is right, we are continuing our exploration of the behind-the-scenes world of movies this summer with a very special interview with Judy Ree, production designer extraordinaire. She has done work for Better Call Saul, Jessica Jones, The Patriot. The Hours, My Blueberry Nights, the list goes on, but her work speaks for itself. It is beautiful to look at, it is elegant, and it is all within the background of the show. It is is the setting, it is the frame of what we are viewing on our screens, in theaters, in, you know, however you are consuming your content. I know I'm, I'm guilty of watching a lot of content on my phone. (laughs) And if you're like me, a small screen, maybe you miss a couple of these details. But I love, 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 love getting into these details and figuring out more of what goes into this. And Judy was such a wonderful person to have on the show. I'm going to stop talking now so that you can enjoy it as much as I enjoy talking to her. So without further ado, my interview with Judy Ree about her extraordinary career as a production designer. Enjoy! Scopophilia, it's the newest thing to hit the market. Defined as deriving aesthetic pleasure from looking at something, it's the new craze sweeping the nation. Taken in large doses, side effects can include an addictive nature to have more film content. If this increase occurs, consult no one and keep listening. Hey there, Scopophiliacs, and welcome back to another episode of Scopophilia, the podcast. And today I am joined by the fabulous Judy Ree. Hello, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm great. Uh, this has been a long time in the making, I know, with uh, Thanksgiving and the holidays. Uh, but it's nice to finally sit down and talk with you virtually. And, uh, and you're in New York, correct? Yes, I'm in Brooklyn. Oh, wonderful. And how, how has it been there, you know, with everything going on? Um, you know, New York, because we went through it so early on, so dramatically, I think right. everyone's taken it pretty seriously and, you know, people are following guidelines. I mean, occasionally you hear of the 400 gathering party over Thanksgiving, <laughs> but aside from those random parties and gatherings, for the most part, New York City, the whole metropolitan area has been pretty good. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's good. Yeah. And so for those at home uh, who may not be familiar with your work, uh, what is your exact title uh, of what you do? My exact title is production designer, um, and I've worked in film, TV, and commercials. And years ago, I did a lot of print as well, and that sort of has gone by the wayside. But um and my background is in art directing, so I came up that way. Um, and I've been doing this production designing, I guess, for the last 
10 years, something like that. And then art directing before that, you know, something in the neighborhood of 25 plus years total. Wow. Amazing. And so I guess uh, for people, again, for people who don't know, what is the, like the exact difference between an art director and a production designer? Well, a production designer is usually hired um, before anyone else's, you know, after the producers and the writers and, you know, the director. The production designer is hired to come up with the look of the show or the look of the movie. So they determine everything from, you know, taking the script and determining, you know, an architectural direction, a color palette. And, you know, once the DP and then the costume designers are hired, then it becomes a dialogue. But really, depending on the director and the project, the production designer pretty much determines all that before the other two positions are hired. And for commercials, it's a little bit different. Um, You work with the director who's then hired by the production company, who's then hired by the ad agency. So a lot of times on commercials, the look and the palette and the direction, the creative direction is already determined by the time uh, the production designer is hired. So it's slightly different for that. Okay. Okay, very cool. And so you've worked on a lot of really interesting projects. I mean, I, I have like a highlights list in front of me, like Jessica Jones, you've been working on Better Call Saul, um, The Hours, which is, you know, phenomenal movie. And so you have, you know, a very impressive list of things that you've worked on. Is there some, uh, a certain project that you find holds significant value for you or that, you know, kind of that you hold closer to your heart? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's sort of like, you know, which child do you like the best? (laughs) Um, You know, all the projects that I've worked on have been fulfilling and creatively challenging in so many different ways and collaborating with different writers and directors and producers that also has like different uh, a feeling and an experience. So I, f- I can't say that I have a favorite, um, you know, working with Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould, just because it's the most recent project I did, um, Better Call Saul, that was really fulfilling on many levels. Um, you know, they have their own particular way of working and, you know, working with the Marvel group on Jessica Jones, that was also interesting because I had never done such a stunt driven show. So that was interesting and new and different and, you know, slightly specific way. Um, I think the the project that I learned the most, I mean, every project I learned so much, you know, because it's so mm-hmm. specific in its demands. But um, I think the biggest leap for me and the biggest takeaway was working with Wong Kar Wai and William Chang on uh, My Blueberry Nights, which was his first American film. But you know, and I was still art directing then and working underneath uh, William Chang was tremendous. That was one of the biggest leaps forward for me. Um, so if I had to pick, I would say that would that was probably the biggest learning experience. I was going to say, because I, um, I, so I just recently watched my Blueberry Nights. It was a new film for me. And, uh, but I had seen in the mood for love before, um, which he had done previously. And so I was very excited to see that he had done, uh, an American film too. So I was, I was very excited to ask you about that. And so then let me also ask you in, in terms of, you know, working on something like my blueberry nights versus 
you know, more recently, Better Call Saul. Do you see, or I guess, could you elaborate on like the differences working with like a movie set versus a television set? Do you have many differences? Does it feel similar? Well, I think the main thing is that, you know, a film, you have one script and that's the one story that you're telling. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas a TV series, depending on if it's a pilot or season one or season two or season five or six, there are, you know, anywhere between eight and 12 episodes that you get to develop and follow. So in terms of the trajectory of the project, one is, you know, TV tends to be longer um, and then there are different characters that come and go. Whereas for a film, because you're only telling the story of the one script, you have a little bit more time to develop in prep. Um, but I think the process is very similar in that for me, it really does start with the writing and um, doing the research, figuring out with a writer-director, who are these characters, what, what's their background, What's the conflict? How do they know each character? How long have they known them? What's the context? Where are they headed? So all those things in the conversation while you're figuring out what the project is about get um, determined during prep. So that's similar, but it's more about the speed in which things get, um, the project gets fulfilled. So the TV schedule, you have less prep time. And you don't always have all the scripts up front. Sometimes you do. And you mm-hmm. can figure out the whole arc of the, the season as opposed to, you know, the scripts rolling in at the last minute is a very different approach than knowing what's going to happen from the beginning to the end of the, the season. Um, but they're very different. I can't say that I prefer one over the other. They kind of, you utilize different parts of your brain and your skill set. Um, one thing I would have to say is because the TV schedule is sped up and you still want to tell the most detailed, um, visual story as possible, that becomes more challenging because you have less prep time, but you still want to fulfill what it is you're trying to support in the writing. Um, but I have to say, having done the commercial schedule, that has helped my TV experience tremendously because you have to do things in a more abbreviated way and figure out what the important elements are that you want to hit visually. And so you don't always have time to do everything you want, but you then figure out what are the three out of the five most important things you want to accomplish for that particular episode or for the writing for the whole season, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, that's a great point. You've, you've kind of, and I don't know if this was on purpose. It sounds like you've inadvertently kind of trained yourself to be adaptable to any kind of project or situation uh, so that you can do your best work. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah. I mean, depending on the project, you know, no two projects have ever been alike. I mean, right. what's interesting is in the beginning when I was starting out, I kept thinking, when I would experience a particular incident, I would say to myself, oh, remember this, because, you know, the next time it comes up. Well, mm-hmm. it never comes up in the exact same form that it has. It's always different. And that's what keeps you on your toes. And that's what keeps your brain sort of agile and flexible to sort of 
address that particular situation at that moment, at that location, in the time period with the crew that you have, you know, so all those elements vary tremendously project to project. And yes, I think I like to do all these different mediums because it does keep you um, sort of fresh and thinking outside the box and, you know, you're problem solving all day long. Uh, regardless of what the project is or how much time you have or how much, you know, you have in resources. Um, you're always up against some challenge that you have to overcome and deliver by a certain date. So, um, yeah, I think for me, I prefer to sort of keep things different and as varied as possible, if that makes sense. <laughs> I know no, yeah. everyone would agree, but... <laughs> No, I, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I, I think that's a great way of looking at it. And so then let me ask you, like, in terms of your work specifically, I know I had seen an interview that you did recently where you were talking about Better Call Saul, and you were saying that they had come to you specifically about, because um, in season four, uh, his brother Chuck's house burns down. Mm-hmm. And so they, they came to you because you specialize in that, correct? Well, I don't specialize in that per se. You know, they came to me because Melissa Bernstein, the executive producer, had seen my work in Patriot. Oh, okay. And uh, she really liked what we accomplished there. So um, it's similar in it. The writing is very original and slightly different and slightly offbeat from most series. So Mm -hmm. perhaps that's what she was looking for or looking at. Um, the Chuck's house specifically, I wouldn't say that I specialize in, um, burnt homes, <laughs> <laughs> the design of burnt homes, um, <laughs> but that was a lot of fun to, that was a puzzle we had to figure out. And, um, because once again, there were certain parameters of what we could do in that particular neighborhood, you know, the time limitations we had, and mm-hmm. it was in the middle of winter. So we knew that the ground was going to be frozen. We knew that the scene, if I think the original script had the firemen watering, you know, putting out the fire, but because it was so cold, we were afraid that it was going to freeze. So that was modified to a certain degree. Um, but that was a lot of fun that I, I felt like that worked and I was pleased with the outcome. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say so. It it looks, it definitely looks like a home on fire, hundred percent. Right. Um, and so, what else uh, in you know can you take personal credit for in that that like we would recognize in that show? So, for that particular set, you mean, or for uh, yeah, season? well, for, yeah, that, for, the- for that set. Um, like I said, we could only do so much at the location uh, in terms of augmenting the existing house. You know, mm-hmm. she does live there. So with her permission and with the neighborhood's permission, um, we were able to scenically modify the lower floor, um, which was to make it look like it had been charred. Mm-hmm. And then we brought in a post-production um, coordinator who then we collaborated with to figure out how much of the second floor did we have to modify practically and could he or they do in post. So it was like a marriage of green screen and how it was shot and lit 
and how much we could do with construction and scenic and set dressing. So this, the lower floor was all done practically, meaning we did remove some windows. We had, um, we were able to look in and dress into some of the rooms as if it had been charred mm-hmm. on the lawn, the foliage that we were able to do with, you know, greens friendly uh, paint as if it had been charred and the rest was done with in post-production, but the design itself, we came up with the art department came up with for them to utilize and um, to um, implement and post. So we all kind of knew what it was going to look like as the finished product um, with some variations on, you know, in details Mm -hmm. and, um, and all of that had to work with what was shot previously you know, in, in season three and and two when we did see his house. So um, there were many factors we had to consider before we came up with the design. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I guess you also have to, I mean, there has to be some kind of thought of like, okay, if the fire starts here, where does it go kind of thing as well to factor in, right? Right, exactly. So, you know, the end of season three, we see Chuck tip over the lantern in the living room. Right. So then you determine, oh, it's a lantern fire. What would have caught on fire first and how would it have spread? And so the epicenter being the living room, which is the the main Mm -hmm. window that you see in that um, the front yard shot. Right. Yeah. And so then, you know, that's kind of an extreme situation and in terms of like jessica jones for example i think i had seen that you had you were in charge of doing jerry hogarth the lawyer's uh home correct right so for jessica jones season two which is what i worked on um Mm -hmm. lauren weeks at season one hogarth's apartment was a new set and when I took on the job, when I interviewed for it, I did ask, were there going to be any new sets? And that was one of them, which I was very excited to design. So um, that turned out really well. I was very happy with it, as was um, Melissa, the showrunner, and Marvel and everyone. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, for Hogarth's apartment, you know, we had never seen it, obviously, bef- you know, in the previous season. So... My take on her place was that she was this high-powered lawyer, and um, and when they it was written in the script as just a loft. And I think for New York, when uh, shows are written for New York, and it's Mm -hmm. and the word loft comes up, I think most people think of Soho lofts or modern lofts downtown. But I thought because she was a lawyer. Uh, it might be interesting to have her more established old school and um, placed her, you know, closer to the Upper East Side um, where it's a little bit more older money and um, established. So, and I thought the Tudor city would be interesting architecturally. So, and they had the scale that we had space to build on the stage. So it made the ceilings 20 feet high and, with a lot of windows. So that was a lot of fun to design. And that was the first set that was up to shoot. So that we spent a lot of our prep um, designing that. I mean, I mean, and it's gorgeous and it's very much a different uh, project than something like Better Call Saul with Chuck's house and 
do you, would you say you prefer one over the other, like something that's a little more deconstructed, a, a little more, um, I guess in depth of, of that thing or something a little more like, you know, Jerry Hogarth's, Hogarth's apartment where it's, you know, classic, um, you know, design, figuring out how she would live kind of things like that. Do you think you prefer one over the other? You know, for me, as you know, as I mentioned, um, I, for me, it really starts with the writing. Um, I have to like the writing and the script and connect to it. And for both shows, I was lucky enough and for Patriot and, you know, that's how I tend to choose my projects. Um, if I connect with the writing or any of the characters or um, what the series is about, um, even if it's a second or a fourth season, you mm-hmm. know, something like Better Call Saul that has, you know, even though it's a prequel, it was already established in Breaking Bad. So that whole world has its own continuity that needs to be kept. Um but knowing that, I once again, I knew there were going to be new sets that were coming up. And so even if you have to slot yourself into a series that already existed before you came along, it is your own interpretation and it is this fine line you have to walk in terms of bringing your vision into it, but also keeping the visual story and the visual continuity intact so it's not jarring you know so that the viewers who are watching from season to season suddenly aren't thinking wait where are we and you know have it be um disruptive to the storylines that they're watching so um you know they're different but i guess maybe that'll be the theme of our interview (laughs) i like to sort of do a varied um swath of work in terms of time period or the writing, whether it's a comedy or drama or horror, you know, it's like I said, it, it's, it's about my connecting to the material. And that's when I do, I feel like the best of my work shows when I connect to the material. I mean, absolutely. It's, it's definitely good to, to switch things up and feel like you're not doing the same thing all the time. Then let me also ask you this. Is there something that you feel like you haven't done that you're excited to maybe do in the future? Um, you know, I mentioned horror because I would like to do a, you know, some sort of horror <laughs> film. I mean, not necessarily strictly slice and dice, but, you know, a psychological horror. Right. Um, you know, the very first film I started with as an art intern was a horror film. was Frankenhooker way back when. <laughs> and that was a horror film with a little bit of comedy in it, obviously with a title like Frankenhooker. Right. But, um, and that was a lot of fun. And maybe I have fond memories of starting, you know, as a non-union art intern where you literally do a little bit of everything. But um, I would like to do horror. That's kind of what I'm waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as a fan of horror, I would love to see what you come up with just based on your previous work. Um, I think that would be something very interesting to see. (laughs) Yeah. A huge thank you to Judy Ree for coming on the show and discussing her career with us here. We were all very excited. But this is only part one of the interview. Of course, there will be part two next Friday, same time, same place, where we will talk more about 
the amazing projects that she has been on. As always, if you cannot get enough film content, I understand. I am posting on Instagram any updates to the show, things that are going on. You can follow us there at Scopophilia underscore podcast. And of course, you can also follow us on TikTok at Scopophilia the podcast. We love to hear from you. And, you know, since you're on the internet already, <laughs> you know, just small thing, um, make sure that you are liking and subscribing and rating and reviewing. And, and, and I love hearing from you guys. I think I said that already. I'm not sure. But make sure that you're telling your friends and your family and your family of friends and your friends of family about the show, because we just want to keep talking about movies. And we want to talk with you about movies. So I think it's a win-win. I, I mean, that could just be me, but I think it's a win-win. And lastly, but certainly not least, we do have merch available. And it is waiting for you to wear it to Trader Joe's, to your local Aldi, if you have one, <laughs> to the grocery store that has different names across the country. It is waiting for you to take it out and wear it to your stores and out and about. We have shirts, we have hats, and we have tote bags. Everything you need for a beach day, for a day running errands, anything you want. The link for it is in our Instagram. You can also find it online, of course. But as always, I'm your host, Becky Teller, here leading the millennial movie movement here on Scopophilia. And I will see you all next week. Bye.